All right, if you go ahead and open up to John 13. John 13, I was talking with Mr. Charles earlier and was talking about not feeling, well, I feel kind of much better, but I'm still snotty and all of that jazz. So he was like, so does that mean it's going to be shorter today? And I told him I wouldn't bet on it. So uh, I don't know if Jordan let you out at a decent time or not. Um, hopefully he did. You gave him five extra minutes? You were done in five minutes. Well, hopefully he did not spoil you too much, considering the way the previous two weeks have gone. So <laughs> I'm sure he killed it. Um, I think Allison had a chance to listen to it, but I did not, unfortunately. This has been a whirlwind of a week, and I did not feel well. So um, anyway, here we are. Um, this morning we'll be looking at the cross of Christ, and I you know, for over 2,000 years, the cross has been such a topic of major debate, um, vast skepticism, but also it's been gloriously hopeful. And, and it's, I don't know if there's anything else that covers quite the gamut like the cross of Jesus does. Uh, it can be such a hopeful thing for some and such a pivotal moment of anger for others. And last week, as Jordan walked you through Judas' betrayal of Jesus, what you saw there was really the setting in motion of the central most moment in human history, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. Some might argue that, but there is nothing more polarizing than that. Um, no event. Um, no event has caused more tension or debate or, again, hope than the cross of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at the cross. Uh, we're not going to look at the actual moments of the crucifixion, but we are going to look at some of the effects of the cross of Jesus as he begins to teach his disciples because in the cross, what we find is that the cross is our only hope. The cross is our most pivotal place of refuge. It is our only means of saving grace. And in the cross of Jesus, we see that the cross of Jesus brings glory to God and leaves us. And when I say us, I mean those who have surrendered their lives to Christ forever changed. You don't trust Jesus and walk away the same. You don't encounter Jesus and leave unchanged. And so what we will see today is that the cross brings glory, that the cross transforms us, and that the cross is Jesus alone. It's not ours, it's his. And so if you will, let's stand, and I want to read verses 31 through 38. We'll close out chapter 13 today. <clears throat> And I'm going to attempt to make it through this. Um, but that does not, again, promise that we will be out of here in a reasonable amount of time. Time will simply tell. Starting in verse 31 of John chapter 13. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, as we close out this chapter in the Gospel of John, I pray that you will just magnify the message of your word in our hearts. That as we gather around your word, that we do give thanks for your word, but that we also just have all of the things that might hold us back from certain truths just be set aside so that we just hear the purity of the message of your word. And God, that you would speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that it's not my message, God, but it's your message, and that it will sink deep into the very fabric of who we are. So that we see the truths of your word. That we may come face to face with sin in our life that needs to be repented of. That we may see the need to cry out to you for salvation. But also, Father, that we would be encouraged by the hope that we find in the cross of Jesus, our Lord. As we look at this polarizing moment that we are approaching, may we see the beauty and the power and the majesty of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, may you speak to us in this time. May we hear the word of the Lord and obey it. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Probably should have been praying for somebody back there too, because I hear, y'all can sit down, sorry. I hear somebody kicking it, like screaming bloody murder. So as we look at the cross, the first thing we see today is that the cross brings glory. I hope you have a copy of the Bible with you. Um, I, I've told you before, I, I know a lot of people use the apps and stuff, and that's fine. Um, but there's just something different about holding pages in your hand. I'm a book nerd, so you know you can take that for what it is. But what I want to tell you today is if you have a copy... I would also encourage you to grab a pen 
Not sure if you're one that writes in your Bible or not, but I'm going to point out some stuff that I really want you to, to make note of today. Um, yeah, and, and if you want to write them down, we forgot to hand out the bulletins, so Paul's going to come around real quick and hand those out. Olivia will help him. She probably wasn't, but she is now. Um, and, and I want you to make some notes, um, underline some of these things, but when we begin to dive into these few verses, um, you probably look first and foremost and, and see, um, if you're in the ESV, you probably have a subtitle that says a new commandment. And you're probably like, wait a minute, how are we talking about the cross of Christ? We're a long way, really, in, in the scheme of chapters from the cross. Um, but, but you'll see how this unfolds. In verse 31, we find this, that when he had gone out, so it's referring to Judas, right? Judas has already done what he was going to do. He's left. Um, he was encouraged by Jesus to go quickly. And Jesus says to his disciples, now. Now, following Judas' moment of betrayal, right? Following this um, moment where Jesus has acknowledged that Judas is going to betray him, Jesus then speaks to his disciples about what's coming next. Now, the disciples don't know exactly what's taking place right here. Jesus does. And Jesus is about to explain to them what's coming, namely his death. But I want you to notice that he doesn't say, now that I'm about to die. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. The question is, why is he doing that? Why doesn't he say, I'm about to die? It would seem to be a little clearer if he would have said, I'm about to die. Instead, he says, now I'm about to be glorified. The point is, is he's actually doing something pretty gracious for them. See, like us, they are no different. They probably don't see things in one big picture. They see glimpses, right? They see pictures. But Jesus sees the entire story. So he begins to give them a glimpse of the entire picture. Now is the Son of Man glorified. The word glory or parts of the word, uses of the word glory, is actually found over 23 times in the Gospel of John. Five of those are in these two verses. And I don't think that's an accident. Five times we see a form of the word glory used, and that's one of the things I want you to underline. So let's read verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, if you notice, there's really two forms of the word glory being used here. And so what I want to do is kind of show us how this takes place. First, Jesus is giving glory to the Father in his perfect and willing obedience to the Father's plan. But first, 
acknowledging in the verses earlier that what Judas is doing is playing exactly into the plans of God. And he tells Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. So he's submitting to the Father's plan that he is about to go to Calvary. But also he receives glory as he is preparing to submit himself to the Father's wrath and just punishment. So again, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So you see glory going to both sides. If God is glorified in him, God will also in return glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And what we see here, again, are really two aspects of glory. The first is what Wayne Grudem calls this excellent reputation or honor. So it was this acknowledgement of the supreme worth and value and character of who God is. It's what we see often in the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament, they would have acknowledged the glory of God, the, the, the holiness of God, the, the set-apartness of God, that He was unlike any other. But the second half of this is really more of the visible, visible manifestation of God. Again, if you think back to the Old Testament, there were many times where God showed His glory in various signs. To Moses and the burning bush is simply one example of that. That he put a display of his glory so the people could see it. But now, in Jesus, we see something altogether different. We see both of those aspects come together at once. Both the supreme worth and reputation and honor and glory of God and the visible representation, manifestation of God's glory, in the person and work of Jesus, God in the flesh, come together to show that the supreme worth and character of God and the visible manifestation of His glory have come together in Jesus. So what does that mean? That means then that the perfect union of both God the Father and God the Son as one, as part of the Trinitarian God, in their union, the cross then will become the ultimate display of God's glory to the people. And all of creation has been leading to this point. God's entire plan has been leading to this moment. It's no accident that Judas betrayed Jesus. He didn't just decide, oh, I think I'm going to betray Jesus today. If you remember in Isaiah, it says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's, this was God's plan all along. To bring glory to himself through the sacrifice of his son. It's all about God's glory, not ours. So often we try to make the cross about us. And we say that the cross is what gives us the power to have victory. Or we give, the cross gives us the power to do X. Or the cross gives us the ability to, to claim something. No, the cross is all about the glory of God. And accomplishing His purpose. And in so we see that Jesus glorifies the Father by submitting Himself as a willing substitute for his people. 
And then in return, God then glorifies the Son in raising Him from death to life and defeating sin and death forever. The cross brings glory. And it doesn't take long to figure that out. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. He's talking about the cross. He's preparing them for the cross. But not only that, we see that the cross transforms us. That is, it transforms those who surrender to Him. Let's look at verse 33. Now, what we'll do in verse 33 is we'll cover part, and then we'll skip, and then we'll actually come back to the rest of 33. The beginning of verse 33 says, little children. Now, we're going to stop right there. We're not going to go a long way in 33. I just want you to see that, little children. If you remember when we were going through the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we saw this a few times. But John doesn't use this term in the Gospels very often at all. It is this supreme affection. See, the deal is is that Jesus is showing such great compassion and affection for his disciples because he knows what's about to take place. He has called them from their jobs, their homes, life as they know it, and they have surrendered everything. If you remember, this has been a long time ago now, if you were around, we were talking about Matthew. Matthew was one who had not a great reputation because he was a Roman tax collector. Now, the deal to be a tax collector was that he had to work towards that for pretty much his entire life. It was not like he just said, I'm going to be a tax collector. He would have went to school after school after school, and this would have been a preparation thing. And for him to go against the Roman government and say, I don't want to do this anymore, I'm out, would have been a huge step. Peter was a very powerful fisherman. He wasn't just some random fisherman. Um, History has actually shown, and and some of the uh, ruins that they have found have actually shown that Peter probably would have been from a pretty wealthy fisherman family. They left everything to follow Jesus. And here, after three years, what they don't realize is that he's about to leave them. And so he's showing this great affection for them by calling them little children. You almost can sense the compassion in his voice. Knowing that he's about to leave them, Jesus does something pretty interesting. He goes on what we know is actually the Longest stretch of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, leading towards the cross. Verse 31 here, all the way up to chapter 17, is Jesus teaching his disciples, preparing them for what is coming. And he starts with a new commandment. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, the interesting thing, again, is life as they know it is about to radically change. They don't quite get that. They hear what Jesus is saying, but, you know, I don't don't think all the dots are being connected quite yet. 
Because what's about to transpire is something beyond belief, really. But the thing is, is he's not leaving them alone. See, we'll get to this in chapter 14, but Jesus actually promises his disciples in chapter 14 that he's going to give the Holy Spirit to his people at a coming date. But even more than that, we see some pretty powerful evidence here that he doesn't even just leave us alone as his followers with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love who? One another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to to love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's leaving them with each other. And he's leaving them with a powerful command. Now, leading in this long stretch of teaching, this is what he starts with. To love one another. He could have done anything, right? He could have said, I'm, I'm going to give you this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and I want you to do it this way, and I want you to, to lead in this way, but he doesn't do any of that. He simply says, I want you to love one another, meaning that they have one another. And further proof of this for us, because we have the entirety of Scripture, is that we know in just really a few days, we're going to find what happens in Acts chapter 2, that they are still together, that they have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that the church will grow rapidly, loving one another. And this command to love one another is not necessarily new, right? I mean, we, we've talked about this before. We, we've even seen all throughout the Old Testament the command to love. But there's something vastly different here. So why does Jesus call it a new commandment when it's a commandment that's been reiterated over time? Because what Jesus is doing, and he's adding a powerful dimension here. He's adding a dimension that isn't fully realized in the Old Testament. It's spoken of, and it's hinted at, and it's prophesied about, but it's not realized. Because what does he say? Look at verse 34 again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But that's an old commandment, right? But he doesn't stop. He says, just as I have loved you. That completely changes the game. We are not simply to love. We are to love how we are loved by Jesus. That changes everything. We've said a hundred times that our definition of love just pales in comparison to, to Jesus' definition of love. His example of love is so much greater than ours. And so the question for us kind of becomes, how has he loved us? And I would hope we would answer greatly. He doesn't look at us as cleansed people in the beginning. He sees us as we are, filthy, rotten sinners, haters of God, 
enemies of God, rejectors of everything that he stands for. He sees us in our darkest moments, in the moments where we despise him, where we despise other people, where we do grotesque things. And according to Romans 5, he demonstrates his love for us and that while we were in those states, he dies for us. See, Christ loves us despite us, despite our filth, despite our sin, despite our shame, despite anything. He loves us. And if he loves us that way, then we can only deduce that Jesus' love for us is simply the pattern that we are commanded to follow. Which means we are to love in a way that goes beyond what we're loving. It's not simply, are we loving people, but are we loving the way that we have been loved by Jesus? That changes the game. That means I love the people that don't think like me. That means I love the people that hate me. That means I love the people who want to kill me. That means I love the people who don't look like me, think like me, act like me, dress like me, smell like me, live like me. I love the people the way that Christ would love people. Because in case we have forgotten, all people are created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And every one of those people, us people, are nothing but sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we all are deserving of the just punishment of God, which is death. And separation from God in eternity. But as Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that hope, then, is the love of Christ put on display on Calvary. That he would love us despite who we are. And here he's saying, now I'm commanding you to love others the way that I have loved you. To love the unlovable. And, and I don't know that we do this well. We may say we do it. But what? Do the actions of our life display? It's a love that lays itself down for the good of others. It's sacrifice. And you might say, I don't really agree with that. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure that the greatest example of love is Christ's gift of himself on Calvary. That's the greatest sacrifice we could ever know. And here we see him saying then, that's how I loved you. Now go do likewise. 
pretty powerful opening statement for the teaching of Jesus in his last hours, huh? Now, what is the fruit then of that? If Jesus is saying, this is what I'm commanding you, he's not saying, this is what I would prefer, this is what I would like to see happen, a new commandment, a definitive term, do this, period. What's the result? Well, look what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It doesn't say all people are going to trust me, but it says that all people will know that you are my disciples if you what? If you have love for one another. So does that mean then that one of the distinguishing marks of being a child of God, being a follower of Christ, must be then our love for one another? So if we're not loving one another well, does that mean we've truly trusted the Lord? Now, I'm not making you, I'm not necessarily urging you to question your salvation at that point, but what I am wanting you to do is say, am I loving the way that Christ has loved me? And if not, then we should be led to repentance. And if we're not led to repentance when we see our blatant sin, then we're living in rebellion to God. You see, the cross of Jesus does truly transform who we are. As I said earlier, you don't come to encounter Christ and walk away unchanged. If we have truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, there is nothing we want more than Him. We truly want Him. See, it transforms us as we trust Him by forming us into the image of Him, Jesus, who is the one who gave Himself on the cross as a ransom for many. So I told you I wanted you to underline a few things. You underlined it glorified and glory, hopefully, glorifying, glorified, uh, earlier in verses 31 through 32. And now I want you also to make sure you underline one another in verses 34 and 35. You should see three of them. So again, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The love of Christ through the death of of Christ, the cross of Christ transforms us. But we don't stop there because the cross is Jesus alone. Let's go back up to verse 33. Jesus said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Skip down to verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, surprise, right? Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, 
Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. What we find in verse 33 is that Jesus is telling them, I'm about to leave. He breaks the news. I know we've been together for three years. I know I asked you to sacrifice everything for following me, for giving up everything to be my disciple. And I told you that we would change the world. And I appreciate that. But now I'm leaving. And of course, Peter has to be the spokesperson. And he speaks up and he questions Jesus again. Now, you would think by this point, Peter's learned his lesson. But this is going to be the ultimate lesson for Peter to learn. Because Peter obviously has good motives. Lord, you're not going anywhere without us. We said that we were going to follow you, and we're going to do it. There's nowhere you can go that we're not going to follow. Even if it means my life, I'm going to follow you. I'd probably say that most of us have had those moments in life. Completely in love with the Lord. Saying that there's nothing that can stop us. God, I will follow you to the ends of the earth if that's where you want me to go. But then something happens, right? Something seems to get in the way sometimes. That something is us. I'm sorry I keep wiping my nose. I'd, I'd rather y'all watch me wipe my nose than y'all watch snot run down my face. Peter just doesn't understand, does he? He just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand what Jesus is referring to. I'm not going to knock Peter for that. I don't think it's wrong to say, give Peter almost a little bit of a pass here. Because again, what is about to take place is quite unparalleled. But he does it. And really, I think, or at least I know I do, I resonate with Peter, not just here, but in a lot of places, but, but especially here. Or how often is God doing something in my life or calling me to do something? And I object because I just don't understand the big picture. That's life. There are a lot of things that happen that are hurtful, that are confusing, sometimes that just want to break us apart. But then there's where, that's where faith comes in, right? To be able to trust God when we don't know. Simply because he's good enough. Simply because he's who he says he is. I told you a couple weeks ago, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life was when we lost our twins. What I didn't tell you, 
I've told you in the past, but in case you don't know the story, is that exactly a year later, we had another miscarriage. And it was just as devastating. And I'm not saying that I'm the only one that goes through those things, that we're the only one that goes through those things, but what I want you to see is that those types of things happen. And instead of stepping back and cursing God, maybe we should lean into the Lord in faith and say, I don't understand it, but I trust that you're working all things together for good because he does make that promise in Romans 8. And it may be the most heartbreaking, devastating, gut-wrenching things that you will ever go through. But that doesn't change the fact that he is good. It doesn't change the fact that his mercy endures forever. It doesn't change the fact that he's God. And as Peter responds, really in a little bit of ignorance, what we know that Peter doesn't know, because we know the whole story, is what Jesus is referring to. Jesus is referring to the crucifixion. Jesus knows what's coming. And because he's referring to the crucifixion, Peter nor any of the other disciples can follow him to the cross. At least not yet. See, again, this was the moment. The cross of Christ was the moment. Set forth in eternity past that through Jesus, God would reconcile his people to himself. And I want you to just think about that for a minute. You know, we want to question the mind and the ways and the plans of God sometimes. But think about how beautiful of an act this is on God's part. That God would not simply create and then have to figure it out as he goes, but that before he creates anything, he has a plan set in motion for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And that included in that plan are broken, sinful, messed up people like you and me. And that he would pick a day in that plan that he would come to us in the flesh, in Jesus, for one purpose to find his way to the cross. Completely innocent. To simply crush him. So that he wouldn't have to crush us. Now, the danger in our lives is to not see how terrible our sin truly is. To not see the depth of our sin. To not put value into the, or the weight of our words that should be there. Or the value of our actions. But as we see the greatness of God, the holiness of God, 
and we put ourselves up beside that, we begin to see how great he truly is and how horrible we truly are. But yet, in his mercy, he simply says, that doesn't matter. Because my blood, my gift of salvation, is greater than any of the sins my people will ever commit. And Jesus commits himself to submit to the Father's will. Now, the interesting thing is, is the way he words all of this. He tells Peter, you, you can't follow me right now. You will later. Now, a little bit of a history lesson. Every disciple, I'm not counting Judas in this. Judas is over, okay? Judas doesn't count. Every disciple, except John, will be martyred for the faith. Murdered because of the stance of standing on Jesus. I kind of like to consider John a martyr, even though he wasn't murdered for the faith. It wasn't that they didn't try. You know, John was, they attempted to boil John alive in oil. And he lived. So then they put him on an island of Patmos right by himself. And God gave us the book of Revelation. You know who was included in that list? Peter. I've told you before, First and Second Peter, some powerful stuff there. Knowing who Peter was, knowing the, the stuff that Peter got himself into in the Gospels, even the denying of Jesus, as you see here at the end of this, it's Peter that God uses to be the voice piece that begins the explosion of his church. Isn't that just the way of Christ, though? He uses broken people. He uses messed up people. He used, man, all throughout Scripture. Abraham was a pagan. God used him. Moses complained that he couldn't be a leader because he couldn't speak well. God used him. David had his issues. God used him. On and on and on it goes. And even here we see God use Peter, even though Peter will deny him. And this is part of the reason I said this might be one of the greatest wake-up calls for Peter ever, because at the moment of it, this, this critical moment, you know, Peter's saying, I'm going to give my life for you. Well, people actually want to take Peter's life, and he, he curses to the point of saying, I don't know him. But according to church tradition, Peter did follow Jesus eventually. Church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. And that was by his choice because he says he was not worthy to be crucified like his Lord. Now, we don't know that according to Scripture, but church historians have written about that forever. But here's the deal. God saves us despite us. 
it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter what beliefs we hold to at whatever point in our life. Our past doesn't matter if we surrender our lives to Jesus. Because the love of Jesus is greater than anything you and I could ever do. I think probably all of us could think of things in our life that we've done that would cause us to sit back and rejoice in the goodness of God that he would save sinners like you and me. I would probably say that most of us could echo with Paul that we are all the chief of sinners. We know the depth of our hearts. We know what's going on in our hearts. We know what God has saved us from. Here's the thing about the disciples. Here's the thing about the martyrs. Here's the thing about us. And although their lives might have been taken, and although our lives might be sacrificed for the good of Christ and the good of others, the eternal reward is great. Why? Because Jesus says you can't go yet. Because of his work on the cross, our eternal reward is great. Because in his death, he has defeated sin and death forever. As Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, the cross was meant for Jesus alone. They, they couldn't follow him then. Jesus tells us, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and do so. But at that moment, this cross, the cross, was Jesus and Jesus alone to bear. Because it's in his work that we find the forgiveness of sin. Not ours, not in our cross. See, if, if he would have said, yeah, okay, we're going, and y'all are all going with me, we're all going to be crucified together, then we might have had some reason to, to justify our own righteous works to make ourselves good. But no, it's him and him alone. And so I hope you see that the cross of Christ truly does change everything. Won't you trust him today? Won't you trust the Savior of the world who loves us despite us? And just in case you didn't get it, there's nothing you have done or will do that's outside of the forgiveness of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, what love you have shown to us that you would call us your sons and daughters. that you would redeem us by the blood of your Son. May we today leave in utter thanksgiving and gratitude for the cross of Christ. And let us never be ashamed to carry it as our banner. 
So may we, as you have commanded, love one another as you have loved us. And repent for where we fail. So that we can trust in the true grace and mercy of our King, Jesus.